Well, I would imagine that if you went up to the average person on the street in Portland and asked them if they believed in Jesus, you could eventually get a yes for an answer. That might take a little bit of doing, but eventually you'd probably get a yes, at least in most cases. Uh, so, for example, if, if you went up to somebody and you asked them if they believed that a man named Jesus walked the earth a couple thousand years ago, if you asked them that uh, they knew about this Jesus who was a moral teacher, if you asked them if Jesus was an upright example to follow, perhaps, uh, probably for the most part, you'd find that people believe in Jesus. Most people believe in the teacher Jesus. Most people believe in the moral example Jesus. Uh, most people believe in the peaceful Jesus and the loving Jesus. They may even believe in the healer Jesus. And if a person studied world history to any degree, probably they even believe in a martyred Jesus. Uh, most people around us would affirm that 2,000 years ago, uh, Jesus walked the earth, He was a man of great quality, and He was put to death. Uh, the only problem is that that kind of belief is not a sufficient saving belief in Jesus. Uh, the kind of belief that reflects adherence to, to certain truths about Jesus, that, it's that kind of belief to be sure, but, but with that there's still an abundance of some necessary additional truth that we must have clear and central in our mind if we're really going to understand who Jesus is in His saving fullness. Uh, things, things are otherwise incomplete. Now, now what's interesting is that as we come to John chapter 20, the people in this chapter are also experiencing uh, something of an incomplete belief in Jesus as well. Uh, we heard John 20 read for us now a couple times, and you recognize the characters in the chapter. Uh, there's Mary, there's Peter, and there's the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John's way of referencing himself in his writing. Um, so you have Mary and Peter and John, and then we have a couple references to the group of Jesus' disciples as well. Uh, so there are a lot of individuals represented in this chapter. And all the various characters here had followed Jesus. They were committed to Jesus uh, to a certain degree. The people in John 20 all believed in Jesus. They knew Him as the great teacher. They knew Him as the compassionate one. They knew Him to be loving and merciful. They'd witnessed Jesus' healing power. Uh, they'd even witnessed His resurrection power when He brought Lazarus back from the dead earlier in John's gospel. Um, and then with following the events of Good Friday, they even would have known Jesus as the crucified and buried one. Uh, but you see, only believing those things isn't enough. The people in John chapter 20, they needed to believe more than that, and we need to believe more than that as well this morning. Uh, what the people of John 20 needed to believe and what we need to believe is not only in the compassionate, in the loving, in the miracle working, even in the crucified Jesus, but what we also need to believe in is the resurrected Jesus. Uh, what we need in order for our understanding and, and committed confidence in Christ to be complete, what we need is to believe that Jesus was not only put to death on the cross, crucified for our sins, but we must believe that death couldn't hold Him and He rose from the grave. In fact, uh, this belief in the resurrected Jesus is so central that when the Apostle Paul speaks about his, his apostolic message that he preaches in Romans chapter 10, Listen to how Paul emphasizes things, knowing all that Paul teaches and writes just from his, from his own writings, knowing all the things that Paul can focus on in his teaching. When Paul emphasizes things in a very succinct way, listen to what Paul says about his own message. This is Romans 8, 9 and, uh, 10, 8 and 9. He says this, this is the message of faith that we proclaim. Okay, so that this is the message of believing that we proclaim as apostles. What is it, Paul? 
If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that what? God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. To, to believe in a healing, compassionate, powerful, wise, even crucified Jesus is wonderful and true and critical to our understanding and faith. But to have our hearts savingly united in a, in a proper comprehension of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must also believe that the grave couldn't hold Him, and on Sunday He rose. And it's this kind of belief that John chapter 20 helps us with today. Now, now, we don't have time, obviously, to look at the totality of this chapter. Uh, maybe this afternoon you can go back and meditate, it, meditate on it a little bit more. Um, and and we'll, we'll dip into various parts as we go here. But while we can't look at the whole chapter in detail, <coughs> excuse me, what we are going to do is we are going to specifically consider Thomas's interactions with the risen Christ. And actually, what we're going to watch in Thomas' in Thomas's interaction is this expansion of belief. That he's, <coughs> that he's going to experience. Um, we're actually going to see Thomas move from not believing uh, to this place of confessing Christ in an extraordinary way. In fact, as we'll say, it may be the highest confession of Christ in the entire Bible by the end. Um, and so as we follow Thomas's own process here, we can actually be helped in our process as we, as we consider the reality of who Jesus is today, uh, especially believing in Him as the risen one. So, uh, we'll look at the text. We're going to start by focusing on verses 24 and 25, where we see that, that if Thomas is going to believe in the resurrected Jesus, he first of all has some conditions that need to be met. Have you known people like that when you interact with them in certain ways? Uh, we're, we're, we're going to be doing something together later on, or, or maybe they need help with something, or you need their help. Uh, there, are, there are those kinds of people who just have conditions that need to be met beforehand. Thomas is one, of those, is one of those people. If he's going to be trusting in Christ, he has some conditions for belief. Um, now, as we start in on these two verses, we, we should understand that it's not as if Thomas is struggling to believe in Jesus in a general sense. Right? Thomas knows Jesus exists. Certainly, he knows it in a unique way. After all, he's one of Jesus' 12 disciples. So, uh, over the course of the last three years, he's been involved in Jesus' public ministry as part of the inner circle, if you like. Uh, and not only that, but, but Thomas has actually shown himself to be a very loyal follower of Jesus. Back in chapter 11, we were told that Thomas is prepared to go with Jesus to face death. He thinks that's happening in some way. He actually encourages all the other disciples to come along too. Thomas is committed to Jesus. Thomas believes in Jesus. He just doesn't yet believe in the resurrected Jesus. Now, at this point, it's, it's good to just catch the flow of what's going on here and remember the kind of pressure that Jesus' disciples in general have recently been facing. So, so we remind ourselves that, that the one they have been following the one they'd been hoping in, the hope for the people of God, the Messiah, has been killed, which is something that Jesus has been preparing them for, in, in a sense, but they never really seem to get it. We remember that through the gospel narratives. They, don't, they just don't have a category for this crucified Messiah. They haven't been understanding it, but now Jesus has been crucified, He's dead, and He's been buried. So where does that leave His followers in general? After all, they, they've, they've not only experienced this, this, this strange turn where their Lord has now been laid in the grave, but they've also had this etern internal betrayer with Judas. And then Peter, who, who Jesus at one point has called the rock, Peter turns out to be not so rockish in that he's denied Jesus under pressure. 
A lot of the disciples have scattered during Jesus' hours of trial and torment. So, so Jesus, this one who is going to come and be the deliverer, is dead. The disciples are distraught. The Messiah has been killed. And so it's no wonder that if we go back to verse 19 of this chapter, we actually find them all on that first Easter Sunday gathered together behind locked doors and we're told they're afraid. They're afraid. The disciples are afraid that the same people who sought to put Jesus to death, and quite successfully, mind you, would, would then uh, come looking for them after Jesus has died. After all, uh, they were his followers, so the disciples have locked themselves away in a room. Things seem to be at an all-time low for Christ's followers at the moment. Death seems to have won. But then, on that first Easter morning, things start changing. Uh, there's this word from Mary that she's been to the tomb and it's empty. So Jesus' body isn't there. And not only that, but Mary actually claims to have seen the risen Lord. And then as the disciples are, are locked in this room, we have the risen Jesus actually appearing to them. Peace be with you, he says, which is a whole sermon in and of itself, isn't it? Just to camp on the fact the Lord shows up to his people who are afraid. And what does he say? He pronounces his peace on them. Peace be with you. So Jesus appears, he speaks his word of peace, so, so they all witness him in his, in his resurrected life. It's been such an extraordinarily crushing few days as we reflect on what they've been through. But now this, death couldn't hold Jesus in the grave, he was vindicated by God the Father, he rose from the dead, and he's appeared to his disciples, uh, locked away in this room as they were. I mean, this is, this is an extraordinary thing for them to witness. It's no wonder that the only emotion for the disciple that John records here in terms of their response to Jesus showing up is that of rejoicing in verse 20. It's such an understated thing there in verse 20. All it tells us, so the disciples rejoiced. Well, way to keep your word count down, John. Right? So the disciples rejoiced. But, but imagine the joy. Imagine the relief that they would have experienced. And as we read in verse 20, we're told they see Jesus and he shows them his pierced hand pierced hands inside so there can be no mistaking the fact that this is the same Jesus who, who breathed his dying breath pierced on a Roman cross and, and now Jesus is no longer dead he's alive this is the resurrected Jesus and his disciples believe because they see Jesus and his scars so it's been a terrifying few days but, but that Sunday must have been the highest point of joy the followers of Jesus had ever experienced right? Here, here's the risen Lord it's really him his side was pierced, the marks are there, but death didn't win. Jesus has ridden. What a day for all, all of Jesus' disciples, except Thomas. Except Thomas. For whatever reason, when Jesus appeared in that room, Thomas missed it, verse 24. He wasn't there. Thomas was a disciple along with the others, but for whatever reason, he hadn't been there with the rest of the, of the disciples when the resurrected Jesus appeared and showed them his hands and his side. We don't know why Thomas wasn't there. People deal with grief differently, I suppose. Right? Thomas was, was a bit of a melancholy person. We know that from earlier chapters. And, and Jesus was killed and melancholy people tend to like to grieve in silence. We don't fault him for that. Right? Maybe while the other disciples gathered to grieve, Thomas went away alone. After all, he'd seen Jesus go off by himself many times to pray. Maybe Thomas was following the example of his master, and in the midst of his grief, he went to a private place to pray. We don't know. But while Thomas was gone, the resurrected Jesus appeared to the rest of the disciples, and Thomas missed it. That's what verse 24 says. He was not with them when Jesus came. However, by the time we get to verse 25, 
And it's probably still that first Easter Sunday, uh, maybe really late in the evening now. But Thomas does finally show up. He, He shows up to be with the disciples. And he doesn't find them discouraged and dejected like he would have expected because something's happened. Something's different. And the disciples tell him what it is in verse 25. We have seen the Lord. Full stop. We've seen him. Now, just put yourself in Thomas's position for a moment. Thomas shows up, and these disciples were believing that Jesus rose from the dead. They believed because they'd all seen Jesus. They'd seen Jesus, and they'd seen the scars to prove it was really him. And now they're telling Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Just imagine what that room must have been like in terms of of, of what Thomas walked into. Huge energy, huge excitement. Thomas, we've seen him. He's alive. We've seen him. But with all that verbal witness and all that excitement, Thomas is not not prepared to believe just yet. He's not ready to believe. Who knows what Thomas was thinking in the midst of all this, but he wasn't believing. So look at how how he responds to all this in the end of verse 25. Thomas responds to them by saying, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. What a downer. But he's saying, speak about it all you want. Unless I touch the scars, I don't buy it. Thomas believes in Jesus. He just doesn't believe in a resurrected Jesus. He needs evidence. He needs proof that what the disciples are saying is true. Again, keep in mind, like all the disciples, Thomas has been on quite an emotional roller coaster for the past week, not least of all the last three days, that this Messiah was going to come and set his people free. And then he's on the cross, and then he's in the tomb. Thomas is suffering from confusion, no doubt. He must have been wondering if he'd been too hasty in believing things before. No doubt he's wrestling with the idea that he's not correctly understanding the person of Jesus Christ. Things are not what he expected. If anything, these past few days would have made him question his own reliable judgment about everything. The one one he trusted in had been killed. And so now Thomas isn't going to be taken in by any new information without having some evidence. And we, and we just need to note that. Thomas isn't, isn't outrageous in his demands here. Do you notice that? All Thomas asks for is what everyone else in the room claims to have experienced. You saw the scars. I want to touch the scars too. Until I do, I will not be believing. I wonder if the Apostle Paul had Thomas in mind when he wrote to the Thessalonians and said, Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. All the disciples seemed on board with this resurrected Jesus idea. All kinds of excitement in the room. But Thomas isn't going to believe unless he sees for himself. And before we jump to criticizing Thomas for his lack of belief, before we call him by his unfortunate nickname, Doubting Thomas, before that, we need to acknowledge Thomas's willingness to hold off and be patient until things become more clear. There are so many things that are said about Jesus, even in our own day. The films and shows that portray Jesus, the books that are written about Him. Just since last Sunday, I noticed three different pieces in the New York Times have been published about Jesus. Now, it's Easter week, so that's not a surprise. But there's a lot of information out there. So many things are said about Jesus that we can be so quick to take in. And Thomas is a good example to us in this way. He doesn't immediately get sucked into the the excitement just because there's energy in the room, which is something. There's all the pressure of the disciple group around him, a group, mind you, that hasn't been too reliable lately, fleeing and denying and such. Right? But, but he's close with them, and they're all around him telling him that they've seen the Lord. And there's Thomas, probably a little too melancholy for his own good, 
Right? Probably a little too slow to believe, but we have to respect his resolve to check the truth. You saw the scars? If I don't see the scars, I won't believe. Thomas has some conditions if he's going to believe in a resurrected Jesus, and that can be okay. Right? When you read certain books uh, that claim to speak about Jesus, when you watch the films or the shows, when you hear certain things about Jesus, do we, do we test it or do we just buy in? Thomas has got a lot of bad press down through the centuries as a doubter. And certainly unbelief is not a place for us to remain. But we do also need to be prepared to test all things, hold fast to what is good. And in a sense, that's what Thomas is doing, and that's okay. Many times, followers of Jesus would be kept from great pains if they just slowed down and checked the truth. And we don't need to be afraid of doing that. And one of the main reasons we don't need to be afraid to check the truth is that while Thomas has conditions for belief, what we see next is that Jesus makes provision for Thomas's concern. So look at this in verses 26 to 29. Jesus makes provision for Thomas's concern. Verse 26, actually verse 26 begins in a pretty painful way. If we just pause and think about that for a moment, a week later, a week later. Right, so, so a whole bunch of time has gone by. And Thomas is still not believing. A week where the other disciples, though they're believing in the resurrected Lord themselves, they're no doubt burdened by Thomas's own struggle. It would have been a long, awkward week. And we think on that, and it's just worth noting that John makes the point of telling us very directly that Thomas is still with the disciples in verse 26. He's not believing in the resurrected Lord, but he's not, he's not leaving the company of Christ's followers either. It's a lesson to us in patience when there are those among us at times who are in the throes of struggling in their belief. Thomas isn't kicked out of the group. He's there with the disciples still, even though there must have been a sense of awkwardness in the whole thing. So we can think about that from the corporate perspective of God's people. There's room to doubt and work through that. Uh, but at the same time, we also see something from Thomas's perspective too. Doubts do not demand that you remove yourself from the company of faith. Isn't that what we so often see? If I'm going to be deconstructing my Christianity these days, the most important thing for me to do is step away from the people of faith so that I can have space for this sort of thing. Thomas isn't doing that. Thomas is staying engaged even though the doubts are there very much for, very much for him. But doubts, they shouldn't drive us away from Jesus' people. They should drive us to be with, be with Jesus' people all the more. And we see that here with Thomas. He's there. They're all in the room, verse 26. There they are. And then in, in verse 26, we're also told that the door's still locked, so they're still living under some measure of fear as disciples about what's going to happen to them as a result of Jesus' crucifixion and, and now resurrection, right? In fact, in fact, politically speaking, now that the body of Jesus is gone, are the disciples going to be, uh, going to be in trouble and, and accused by the powers that be maybe for stealing the body, right? They don't, they don't know, right? So the disciples are still there behind a locked door, and just like last week before, the week before, uh, we find Jesus coming into their midst. So he stands among them, the text tells us. And again, like the week before, he says, peace be with you. Right? And then in verse 27, Jesus turns directly to Thomas. He turns directly to Thomas. And it becomes very clear that the risen Christ has a specific purpose in his visiting of the disciples on that particular Sunday. He's there to talk to Thomas. Jesus is going to make provision for Thomas's concern. So, so often we can think that unbelief is up to us to solve. Can't we think that? Right? If, if I could just conjure up enough faith, 
I would not struggle with the doubt I've been experiencing. Or maybe when it comes to that other relationship with that loved one, if I could just present gospel truth in a proper way, if I could just pass off just the right book, if I could have the right conversation be just eloquent enough with my words, if I could alleviate the doubt they're having about the reality of Jesus and who He is and what He's done. If I, if I, if I, if I, first and foremost, unbelief is not up to us to solve. And we can check our hearts by this verse. The disciples did not solve Thomas's struggle. Jesus does. The risen Christ provides for Thomas's lack of belief, just like he'll provide for the lack of belief in our own hearts and in the hearts of others whom he calls to himself. The risen Jesus knows all things. He knows the words of Thomas's mouth. He knows the thoughts of Thomas's heart. He knows these things, and Jesus is there to bring Thomas from a place of uncertainty to a place of faith. And we notice Jesus's intimate knowledge of Thomas's struggle. Uh, just a, a text note here, as Jesus even uses Thomas's own words, basically verbatim. He says, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. That's what he says to him. Jesus is providing very specifically for Thomas with the evidence he needs in order to believe. Touch my scars, he says. And then Jesus adds to that evidence a very direct command. It is an imperative. Don't be faithless, but believe. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas, it's time to stop disbelieving. You need to trust in me now. And what does Thomas do? Well, Thomas responds by making what is probably the highest confession of Christ in all the Scriptures. Jesus says, believe, what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't correct Thomas. Jesus accepts Thomas's high praise because Jesus is, in fact, the risen Lord and Almighty God. And we read this and we have to wonder, how did Thomas make such a jump? How did he make such a leap from, I will not believe unless I see and touch, to confessing the lordship, and not just that, but he confesses the godness of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus. My Lord and my God, that's high theology from Thomas. Is that how I would have responded here? I don't think I would have responded in this way. I would have seen Jesus maybe touch the nail-pierced hands, and I would have said something like, oh, it's you, Jesus. Or maybe I would have said something like, wow, you're alive. Or I might have even said something like, why did you let me wallow for a whole week before showing up? But Thomas doesn't say any of those things. He just says, my Lord and my God. It is a very personal confession of the absolute supremacy and uniquely distinct divinity of Jesus. Why is this Thomas' reaction? Well, maybe that week that passed wasn't so pointless after all. Thomas was in the company of the disciples. Certainly they would have continued to speak to Thomas about the fact they'd seen Jesus. And Thomas would have continued to turn over all these things in his mind. He's obviously a thinking man. So so there in his struggle during the last week, he would have thought back over the three years of ministry with Jesus. He would have remembered when they were in the boat in the storm, for example. You remember Jesus speaks to the wind and the waves. And he says, be still. And the wind and the waves obey Jesus. It was quite a display of deity. The Jesus in the boat is the divine master of the universe. The creator speaks the creation, listens. That's divine. Thomas would have brought that to mind. And then Thomas, no doubt, would have, would have remembered an interaction that he had with Jesus back in John 14 when Jesus tells Thomas that to know him, to know Jesus, is to know God the Father. Right? Thomas would have remembered that. It's quite a claim to deity. Right? 
And Thomas would have remembered in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas came with that great crowd and and swords and clubs to arrest Jesus. When they said they were looking for Jesus, who is Jesus? Thomas would have remembered that when Jesus said, I am, that all that menacing crowd fell backwards to the ground as Jesus spoke words reflecting the name Yahweh, the covenant name of God in the Bible. They all fell down. Thomas has had a week to turn all these things over in his mind. Maybe you've had that experience of being plagued by a thought or a decision and it's rolled over and over in your mind for days and days on end. You just can't get rid of it. It's there. It's constant. You're always thinking about it. No doubt this this is what it would have been like for Thomas during that week. All these things. And now the risen Christ appears. Jesus makes provision for Thomas's belief. He says, put your hands into my side. Thomas, don't be faithless. Believe in me. And all of that thinking and all of those experiences over the past three years and all that Thomas has seen now in the presence of the risen Christ, it all simply must have overwhelmed Thomas. And as the truth of the identity of the resurrected Lord sets in, he just reacts. My Lord and my God. This is who Jesus is. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just a martyr. He's the risen Jesus, and He's both supreme, and He is God. And Thomas confesses that belief. Now, at this point, we we reflect on what's happened here for just a moment. And it's possible for us to look at this episode and say something like, um, well, this is really nice for Thomas. I wonder if maybe you're a person who struggles with unbelief at times. If if you struggle with unbelief, you're probably looking at this text and thinking that, you know, if Jesus would just do that for me, it would put all my doubts away too. Jesus makes such wonderful provision for Thomas here. Why won't he do that for me? But actually, if if we read this closely, Jesus does make provision for that very concern right right here in the text. Look, Look at what he says to Thomas in verse 29. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You see what Jesus is doing here. Through the experience of Thomas, he's telling us that a change is coming. The resurrected Jesus will soon be the ascended Jesus. The Jesus in this little room in Jerusalem will soon be the Jesus who ascends to the Father's right hand in heaven. Things are changing. The provision that Jesus makes will no longer be personal resurrection appearances. But what we hear from Christ in this statement is that those who believe apart from the visible presence of Jesus, those who believe, believe because they're blessed by God to do so. That's John's way of telling us that they're the recipients of God's unique and special favor. These original disciples of Jesus were eyewitnesses to resurrection life. And and we needed them to to witness Jesus' resurrection life. The Christian church needed these eyewitnesses. They they were climactic points along the way of, of God's revelation of Jesus to humanity. We need the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. It's crucial. But if we're tempted to think, oh, I would be it would be so wonderful if I could have just been one of those eyewitnesses, seen the the resurrected Lord, then my belief would be so secure, then my belief would be so sure and constant. If only he'd appeared to me, that would surely have been the greatest blessing. But actually, through Thomas's situation, Jesus is communicating that there will be a different kind of experience that's blessed by God going forward with regard to believing. Certainly to see the risen Christ was a blessing, extraordinary. But there is a blessing for those of us who have never seen Him. Blessed, so benefited by God, Jesus says, are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
You see, just as Jesus made provision for Thomas's belief, he's made provision for our belief as well. Jesus will work through these eyewitnesses. Jesus worked through the apostles to bring the message of his resurrection life to the world. Actually, we have an immediate example of that right here in our text. The apostle John, who writes this gospel, we're studying it right now. The apostle John was there when Jesus spoke these words. And having, having that in our mind, it's amazing what comes next in verse 30 and 31. Look at what comes next. What does John tell us? Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, i.e. in this gospel record. Jesus did all kinds of stuff. But these, these are written so that what? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus no longer appears to us when we're gathered together as his followers. He's ascended to heaven. So how do we know? How how do we know that he's the risen Lord? Well, he's made provision for our belief too. He's left us the written account of these events just as his apostles witnessed them so that we may believe and, and have life in his name, have resurrection life in his name. We don't believe in the resurrected Lord because he's come into the room visibly to us. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead because he is determined to provide the blessing of God to us through the ministry of the scriptures, which witness to the reality of who he is and what he's done. And as those scriptures are attended by God, the Holy Spirit, that truth is worked on our hearts and our eyes are open to see Jesus for who he really is. And that's why John tells us what he does in verse 31. These things are written in order that you may believe. We don't see Christ, but we know our Redeemer lives because because God blesses us with the ministry of the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to Christ from the Scriptures. So this is a worthwhile point to consider on Easter Sunday. If you struggle with your belief in Jesus, whether it's a, a continual struggle and you're just not really sure if you could ever trust in this Jesus character, Or whether it's one of those situations where you have ebbs and flows of doubt in your Christian life. This is something that can be very true for believers. Seasons of doubting, seasons of wondering. If you struggle with your belief in Jesus, read John's gospel. Read it from front to back and take Jesus' word to Thomas as his word to you. Don't be faithless, but believe. And what will happen is that as you come under Scripture's Spirit-empowered witness to the Lord Jesus, what's going to happen is the Spirit of God stirs your heart, you'll end up down on your knees crying out, saying just what Thomas does, my Lord and my God. So be prepared. If we continue to come under this word with a soft heart, we will be believing in the resurrected Lord because this is the provision that Christ has made for us. This is the blessing that comes from God for us. He will be as real to us as if he was standing right there in front of us. And that's because in in believing on the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, there is salvation applied that God has planned. In knowing the resurrected Lord, we know the one who's conquered sin and death. He didn't just pay our price for sin, but he conquered sin and death. That's why he's resurrected. It is the vindicating voice of the Father saying what Christ has done is sufficient. He's accomplished it. Death can't grip anyone anymore who's trusting in Jesus because in being united with him, we're completely free from the guilt that would otherwise cause us to die in our sin. No, Jesus has paid for that sin. Jesus has rose again, conquering the grip of death. And now on the other side of that, we only have eternal life. And that's what we get when we believe in him. I have shared this story before, I, I can't remember, but this story is told of a, of, a, of a small European village where a faithful pastor ministered to the people 
of that community for many years, teaching them, teaching them the Bible, uh, preaching the gospels, teaching them about Jesus. And into this small town uh, comes a traveling scholar, and he asks to debate the minister publicly in the town square uh, regarding the validity of Jesus' resurrection. And the scholar was sure that in this small village he could convince the, the simple people how silly it was to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And so the day comes for this debate. The town square is full. Uh, the scholar stands up first to bring his arguments against the resurrection, and he waxes eloquent for some time. Uh, many fine points. He's quite the orator. And then he sits down very satisfied with his presentation. And now it's the minister's turn. And the minister gets up and addresses the people whom he's been preaching the gospel to for all these years. He gets up and he says, He is risen. The entire town responds by saying, He is risen indeed. They all leave the town square, go about their business. The scholar sitting in his chair wondering what in the world just happened. He has nothing to do but go to the next town and try again. Why? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And so today, under the word of God, let's be believing in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came, died, and rose again to bring us life eternal. Let's pray. So, Lord Jesus, we make this our confession. We do believe. We believe that you rose again. We believe that you are the God who gives life. We call you our Lord and our God. We yield to you as the divine one who's come and identified with us in your humanity, who bore our weight of sin on the cross. And in your life, we find life. We confess that there is only life found in your name. You, you are the exclusive and only Savior. Because you are the only one who ever could have conquered death. And because you've done so, we place our faith in you. Help us trust in you when our faith is weak. Draw us out in belief in you when we're feeling our frailty of mind, frailty of heart. Lord Jesus, on this Resurrection Sunday, we want to believe in you. Help our belief. We pray this, uh, knowing that your name is strong and that you're the one who provides. Amen.